Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am Brian Weinstein, your host. This week on Attendance Bias, my guest is Pete Mason, although you probably know him better as Fan Art Pete. Pete is a teacher, an author, and of course, the founder of Fan Art. That's Fan Art with a PH. Fan art has been an institution on the fish scene for a while now as something of a hub or an exchange for artists to display and sell their work. So if you've ever been to a high profile run of fish shows, for example, Dick's almost every year or an MSG holiday run or maybe the Mohegan Sun shows in 2019, you may have found yourself at a fan art show. While these shows are the result of lengthy collaboration, they certainly would not happen without Pete. For today's episode, Pete chose to talk about Fish's show at Star Lake Amphitheater in Burgettstown, Pennsylvania on July 29th, 2003. Pete and I go into detail about this, but if you weren't a fan in the 2.0 era, it's really hard to imagine and really hard for us to explain the shockwaves that this set list, which was full of rarities and bust-outs, sent through the fan base at the time. It was a show that simply didn't happen in 2.0, and yet when it did, it blew everybody away, and when you listen to it, you totally understand why. Pete chose this show not only for that reason, but also because he was with his brother and because the playing is superlative. It's absolutely incredible. So enjoy my discussion with Pete Mason about July 29th, 2003 at the Star Lake Amphitheater in Burgettstown, Pennsylvania. Pete, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So... We are here to talk about what I think is a show with a pretty high profile, one of what maybe you could call a tentpole show of 2.0, would be July 29th, 2003 at Burgettstown at the Star Lake Amphitheater. Yeah, that show uh, to me was really, I mean, it was a huge high point of that summer of 2003 and of all of the 2.0 era. There's... There's only a couple of shows that stand out, and that one for me uh, in Burgettstown is hands down one of my favorites, uh, and I was thrilled to re-listen to it ahead of the show. Excellent. Yeah, me too. I remember when they first played it and when I first listened to it, and it's been a while since I revisited it. I remember especially when it was played, looking at the set list the next day, and I want to go into this a little bit later, I kind of the shock that I had and probably a lot of fans had at the incongruity of the set list kind of compared to what we were used to in Mm. 2.0. And I can't wait to get to that. But before we get to July 29th, 2003, let's hear a little bit about yourself. So Pete, where are you from? I'm from uh, Albany, New York, grew up in the suburbs and uh, I've been, uh, uh, and went to school in Syracuse and then eventually moved back here and, uh, been, been enjoying life in uh, the Capital District since. Uh, I've, uh, I'm a teacher. I did teach special ed in the Albany area. Published a, uh, a handful of books, um, fan art, fan food. Most recently, my uh, children's books. Uh, a well-traveled dog was the uh, adventures that uh, my, my dog Haley went through uh, in life and uh, with me. And, um, and then two ABC books for Fish and Dead Songs. And uh, got a couple more in the works that I'm Pretty excited that we're going to see the light of day soon, thanks to sitting around during quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) We've all got our projects. This is mine. 
So, yep. yeah. Right. So, growing up in the Albany area, how did fish first enter your life? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, my uh, neighbor across the street, Sarah, she, uh, I was in, I think I was in eighth grade. And so she would have been in sixth. And there was a handful of us in the neighborhood over there one night. And her friend put on this weird white CD, uh, Junta. And um, we listened to, the, to that. And I vaguely remember Esther sounding just creepy as hell. <laughs> Still um, does. And, and Golgi, I was like, are they really singing about what I learned about in life science? And then uh, Contact and Contact was the one that really stuck out. Um, that, you know, that, that and Dinner in a Movie. Anything where that has just repetitive lyrics, I was probably going to fall into. And then I just pretty much ignored it. So I know I ignored fish more or less from 90 to 95. It wasn't my thing. I loved grunge. I focused on that. Then I got to Syracuse and, um, why did you, when did you get to Syracuse? How old were you now that were in Syracuse? I was, uh, I turned 18 the semester I got to Syracuse. Okay. You know, some people were fish fans and then, um, there was a bar that we, uh, that we all went to for live music called Hungry Charlie's Chuck's. And there were dead cover bands on Mondays. There was the occasional fish cover band. One band was from Long Island called The Flow. Um, P-H-L-O-W? Uh, no. Okay. F-L-O-W. I'm looking that way because there's a, uh, there's a, a poster from that night when uh, Fishman was in town. And he was buddies with the manager. And he came in and he ended up playing drums with him. Oh, fuck. So I, it, it started to like seep in. and. And, uh, you know, I listened to plenty of random fish here and there, and I heard Sparkle on Dr. Demento, but I never wanted to get into it. And then uh, a friend of mine gave me a live one and hoist and started checking it out. And I, my first show was in my hometown uh, on December 13th, 1997. And that was, that, that was one of my you know, groundbreaking concert experiences, even though I didn't fully get it until a couple of years later. Uh, my memory, my set list memory, Farmer's Almanac memory is failing me right now. So where was that show? That was with the Knickerbocker Arena, well, the Pepsi Arena in Albany. Right, okay. It starts out with a really long Yamar to open up the show. Um, there's a sample in a jar in the first set. I love that. Uh, good times, bad times to close it. And then I didn't know anything else, but that second set, um, has just a huge mic song with the bring the dude uh, goofing around. And it just, I remember the place just deafeningly loud and I didn't know why. Like, like they were supposed to bring this dude out and I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> that show I saw there was like Aerosmith three years before and, oh, wow. and Nine Inch Nails before that. I'm like, what's going to happen here? And, you know, we got a sweet encore. I think they shut the lights off during Hood. Um, it was, it was a, it was a pretty awesome show, but it took until about a year later where I started really getting into collecting tapes. And then the next year after Oswego, I was just sold and hooked on this band. I wanted to listen to everything and started trading tapes and going to everything. And so you've, you've really dug in since the late 90s. And a lot of people who are listening to this probably know you better as Fan Art Pete, mm-hmm. right? And on your website, fanart.net, that's P-H-A-N-A-R-T as one word, 
it says that you began fan art shortly after Fish's final shows in 2004 as a way to help preserve the legacy of Fish's community. So after Coventry, how long after that festival did the idea of fan art come to you? On the drive home. Um, yeah, was that, that so instantaneous? I can tell you, we left Coventry. I just remember getting, we got hammered on Sunday night at the show, like everyone. And we just kind of all went to bed quietly the next morning. And then people slowly were leaving. And you kind of realized, like, you weren't going to see some people for a while. Mm-hmm. Just like we're not seeing some certain people we wouldn't see otherwise um, without fish touring. So um, every time, you know, when people started to like get ready to mosey and shuffle and get back to life, they were, um, you know, everybody was making sure to say goodbyes and lend a hand and clean up around your area. We got in the car about five, I think. And then um, started driving down, down I-91 and just as it started to get dark, I was listening to, um, uh, what's that show that had Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew? Oh, The Man Show? No, not The Man Show. No. Uh, Love, yeah. Love Lines? Love Line. So there's not much, we're in Vermont, there's not much, there's not, not sure. many radio stations where I ended up listening to Love Line for like 20 minutes, and I can't say that it was any inspiration, but I kind of shut it off. Well, I guess it inspired me. I shut it off and just listened, just drove quietly for a little while. Um, while my friends were asleep in the car and I just started thinking about what was going to be missed and, you know, just reminiscing already about stuff. And the idea that I had in mind was like, man, I'm going to miss all those shirts and stickers and posters that I was just becoming aware of. I Mm -hmm. found out about a lot of the early fan art scene, not from really the lots because I didn't really hang out on the lots or anything. And, There was a lot more dead stuff, not lightning bolts and bears dead stuff, but just selling like hemp stuff and perfumes and pads for shorts and dresses for girls. I didn't really see like anybody with a stand with a bunch of t-shirts on it as we do these days. I wasn't really looking for it, but so that doesn't mean it wasn't there, but not like we see today. Um, So we're staying at this uh, Best Western um and uh the second day we we woke up for breakfast and walk out of breakfast and there's a small little art show there artists and there were maybe 10 and among them were isadora bullock aj mastay ryan kerrigan uh jason leeds um trip i'm pretty sure was in this and a handful of uh, jason kazarowski a handful of others that were uh, on the fishposters.com message boards and they started this little show, uh, and there was another one December 30th, 2003 in Miami. That one I knew about ahead of time because I was starting to get tapped in and wanted to know what I wanted to buy and spend or invest money in. They didn't have another one until Hampton 03, um, at which point I was exhibiting at the show, selling the fan art book and helping raise money for Mockingbird. I uh, had gotten into it only recently, and, and I basically took the Coventry breakup time to look back and be like, all right, well, let's start this project and just try and find everything I can. And 2004 internet is not the same as 2014 internet. So it was a process to search through message boards, through deep Google searches and eBay searches and contacting 
uh, people who may not use their email or fallen off the face of the earth to ask them for their contributions to the book and, and also sell them on the idea. Hey, we're going to make a book for charity and put all this stuff together. And is, was it as arduous as that? Like to get the whole idea, the whole entity of fan art started was to just kind of throw as many feelers as you could out and keep them. Cause that sounds like a really hard task to accomplish. At the time it was, it started out with, you know, identifying a list of artists I wanted to reach out to, artists that I knew, and I, and I and I knew zero artists at this point. I didn't have an artist who was like guiding me. I mean, some of some like Ryan Kerrigan, Jason Kazarowski, and some others were very helpful in saying, "Oh, hey, you should talk to this person, this person, this person," and that did help. And it's how I started to find, reach out to uh, quite a few folks that just you know, aren't doing anything now. They, they were, they were, mm. they did something in like 99, 2000 and they were still, it was still fresh to contact them. Um, I got as many as I could, had a little legal something drawn up, just saying, I'm going to use this just for the book and this is your protection of mine. And everybody was on board for this. It was great. And it just took a long time. I stopped the process of collecting all the stuff and reaching out to people somewhere in the summer of 2008. So I went about four years of just collecting and collecting and collecting. And then I laid the book out in the fall of 2000, 2008, had it finalized uh, just as I was going back to school, uh, going back to teaching. And um, we published it in February 2009, just before Fish came back. What do you remember about the first fan art show? So... In, so the first fan art show was November 2nd, 2013 in Atlantic City. And what I remember about that is that I put that whole thing together in a month. And I had never done that before. I'd never done anything like this before. I was kind of under, I, I was put in a position that I didn't want to shy away from. And I'm certainly glad I didn't. And it was that um, there were a couple of folks that that summer, and, and uh, including a Kara Maste, AJ's wife, who we had planned, uh, we, we planned a summer show in Saratoga, but the same, uh, the three of the, the other three folks, just they, they, they were not available um, for uh, November 2nd or anything. Um, nobody was going to be there except for me. And I only had, at that time, I, for the, the shows that we were putting together that preceded the fan art shows, which very much looked, looked very similar to um, just you know, not, not, not as uh, well attended. They um, they were like, well, we shouldn't do one. And I was like, guys, I have a lot of artists that are reaching out to me saying they need something. They they won't go if they can't vend. They they have tickets. They want to. They have hotel, but they're they're, they're looking forward to this. We, we can't let them down. And I was told, you know, by one by one of the three people on the call, I was told, don't do it. You're not going to make it happen. And the other two were um, supportive. Is, is probably the, the best, most accurate word because they basically said, "Go for it. Just go mm-hmm. for it. Here's what you, you know, here's what you need to look out for." And that night, that day, I called up Caesars and uh, said, and and Bally's and some others, and and got prices. And Caesars got back to me, and we had the first show there. And it took me 30 days, almost exactly, before I arrived. I had to figure out. I, I figured a lot of stuff out over the course of a few Shirsty shows, but that first one, it was, I'm glad my friend Karen was there because she played music all day. <laughs> you need it. And, and if it wasn't for her sitting there, it would have just been a lot of talking and 
and convert conversations. There was uh, the Fantiques Roadshow. That's from, a, that sounds great. <laughs> it, it was great. Uh, Jason Wigman and um, Jesse had the, the Taper 420 had the, had this show and they basically brought it to the corner of the shop. People brought stuff in and they like, you know, quote unquote appraised stuff. And it was, it was hilarious. I couldn't really take part in it because I'm running the show. We had a successful event. I, I remember when it was all said and done, I had cut the expenses down from what they normally were. I had profited a hundred dollars off the entire show. Rich man. And, and I would, dude, for, for not knowing how some of the other shows had been, to, to, to profit, even just that little bit was like, all right. So I bought drinks that night. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden when Fisher was announced, I was like, let's try this again. We'll do it at yeah. Congress Plaza. You must've felt amazing when it actually came off. Oh, I felt great. We, I, I, after the show, I remember going down to see Particle at some club and, and getting back to the hotel room. And I just was like, that was incredible. And I'm not, I didn't, I never had any experience planning anything like that or putting it together. And, and all I did was just reach out to the, to certain vendors and some folks reached out to me and we just set up the price and got everybody paid in advance and it, and it was a go. So the next one was better and the next one after that. And, and it really was a start. I do remember looking around the, um, looking around the room that day and just marveling that people were enjoying it. Before we get into this specific show at Burgettstown, let's take a look at Fish in 2003 overall. Fish played 45 shows in 2003, which consisted of a quote-unquote reverse New Year's Eve run with the New Year's as the first show of the four and then Hampton after that. A very highly regarded winter tour that took up about half of February, a summer tour that filled almost the whole month of July, it concluded with the It Festival, and then in the fall, they played a short four-show 20th anniversary tour that, uh, that had just four shows along the Northeast Corridor over Thanksgiving weekend, and they closed the year with a four-night New Year's run in Miami. Some of the higher profiles show from the year were the New Year's Eve show with a weird Tom Hanks-inspired New Year's Eve gag. <laughs> The, uh, the February 28th show at the Nassau Coliseum with the return of Destiny Unbound and an all-time tweezer, the It Festival. And the 20th anniversary tour that even if it was not very notable, musically speaking, it featured guests from the band's history like Tom Marshall, The Dude of Life, and Jeff Holdsworth even. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was in between my junior and senior year of college. I attended as many shows as I possibly could. Um, I only saw Cincinnati in February, but I went to a few shows that summer, including it, and the Nassau and Philly shows on the 20th anniversary tour. So where were you in 2003 leading up to this show? All, I was all over the place. Uh, uh, I uh, had graduated from Syracuse that previous in August 2002 still living up there uh took a first day of grad school um and uh, was bartending and getting to that point in of what am I doing where am I gonna go like I had finally graduated and I eventually like you know bowed to the mental pressure of let's just get the hell out of Syracuse so around around the first week of June I ended up uh 
uh, moving down to Florida uh, with my brother. And we're there for just a few weeks, got our apartment situated and moved in. And then, oh, look at the time. Fish tour is coming to Atlanta in a couple <laughs> days. So we were going to drive back up and go to it. I wasn't going to miss that. But um, I I had my brother. He, had, he didn't have a job just yet. So we just said, screw it. Let's go. And we took uh, my dog Haley and drove up to Atlanta. Saw the show there on the 26th. Drove up to um, Sumter, South Carolina, where my aunt and uncle lived mm-hmm. at the time. And then the next day on the 28th, drove straight through and overnight to um, uh, Burgettstown. And uh, stayed there that night uh, uh, with uh, my friend Sam. Um, and then planned to go to the show the next morning. And uh, we were... We, we we were thrilled about it, and I actually I got I brought Haley to the Atlanta show. She stayed in the car with the windows cracked, and she and everything was good. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Burgettstown, where a uh, friend had a Jeep with you know the plastic doors that you put on it. She was content laying in the back of that the whole whole day, and and, and in the night she was chill. So that's so sweet. Getting into the first set of this show, I mentioned it earlier, but when this show was played. I remember just seeing the set list on fish.net the next day and it's hard not to remember, but it's hard to kind of understand if you weren't there to understand the context of what it felt like to see this set list. When in 2003 and 2004, I think the band played a lot of similar shows on paper and this just had so many rarities and songs that seemed to just come out of left field and things that you wouldn't expect them to play. And it just, without even hearing it yet, it looked like a show you would be sorry to miss. No, you're right. Like there were, there were people who the next day were like pissed that they weren't there or, or that you were there and they weren't there or that they, you know, they, they had a ticket and they didn't go or they thought about going. You know, if you look at the tour routing, it was, um, I think it was Raleigh, Atlanta, Charlotte, or Charlotte, Atlanta, Raleigh. Um, so we go from North Carolina. What are you going to do? Go to Burgettstown or go to Camden? Right. And then go, like, you can just take 95 the whole way and skip one show. It's one of their only Midwest shows that tour, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm sure there was Deer Creek, but mm-hmm. you're going to give everybody a last chance from Cleveland and Pittsburgh to go check it out. <laughs> so it, it didn't feel under-attended, but I also don't really remember it being... Uh, I don't really remember the the, the crowd very much because I was just so caught up in the music and so caught up in what was unfolding and watching the stage or the screens that were um, giving us close-ups when we got to the Harpua. First three songs in the set were Daniel Saw the Stone, which was the first one since 1997, which was 285 shows. So that's the opener. And then they played Camel Walk and got a Jaboo. Yeah. And Camel Walk was rare. But yeah, it was. Um, it, I think we get it a lot in, in, in 3.0 um, comparatively. It was um, even when they played at Darien Lake, I think it was the third one since the late 80s uh, when, they, when they played Darien Lake in 97. So, yeah, we were out of the gate. You're getting Daniel Saw the Stone that nobody knew. But I knew it as a religious song because um, <laughs> I loved that there were a couple of those all throughout 
peppered in and Paul and Silas as references. Yeah. And then Camelot, whoa. And that's when people were like, oh, what's up? And then a big jabu. It's like 10 minutes, I think. Yeah, actually, it was, yeah, it's about nine or 10 minutes. And not only the length, but it was extremely fluid. Yeah. Like, it's a really good jam. Really good type one jam. It just, it, it, you don't get early on at that time. Um, you know, it was, I, the show we saw a couple of days before was a straightforward heater. Um, but, yeah. but the first set was just the first set. This was, this was a little special getting a Jabu that, and I usually, when I hear in 2020, when I think about 2.0 as like a solid entity, I usually picture those long dissonant jams that I think were more popular or more common in 2004 as compared mm -hmm. to 2003. So that when I heard this Jabu in preparation for this recording, I was like, oh, wow, they really played with an energy and a focus that I kind of forgot about. And Jabu is excellent. There's about eight minutes. There's this like great guitar lead. Um, Fishman gets in on the fun about 45 seconds later. Jabu, I wrote in my notes, the crowd knows that the band is on and that they're in for something special. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember the cheer after that Jabu. It was like, all right, we all know this one, and you jammed it well. What do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> yeah. And I think it was the second ever Cool It Down that was dropped after that. And I Third time. It was the third one. The third version of a song, not that, that they debuted five years prior, and you don't have your phone to check this out. You can't just right. look it up. There's no internet to, I mean, there's an internet, but there's nothing on your phones. So you had to like, just talk to some nerd or ask about it. I don't, <laughs> I think we all figured out it was cool it down. And somebody might've said, oh, it's Velvet Underground. Okay. And then that was, that, that stood out pretty significantly. That, that was, that was and even fun. with it, there's a part in the middle of cool it down where Trey kind of like, slow down, speed up jams in the middle. You know, it's not a full improvisation. Oh, yeah. And they, she slows them down a little bit and then they go bit and it builds up again. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's one of their best tricks where it, it's almost like when you unplug a, uh, a machine and you hear it power down and then yep. you plug it right back in. It's kind of got that weird back and forth.
next, they play Scent of a Mule, which I absolutely loved. This is the longest jam of the set, too, right? I think so. Either, no, either that or Timber Ho, which came two songs after. Mm-hmm. I don't have the timings in front of me, but Scent of a Mule, it's extremely notable because in the middle, we're used to Paige just doing his crazy, you know, his craziness in the, in the middle with his banging on the piano and then the Trey and Paige mule duel. But for this one, there was like a whole band melody. Yep. There was and, a whole extra element to this one, and it, it stands out a little different than other uh, than your typical mules today or even then. Yeah, it stands out for any era. And Fish.net has it listed as Wouldn't It Be Loverly by Julie Andrews from My Fair Lady. And I'm into musical theater. I never would have picked that out in 100 years. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Trey pulling deep into his Broadway catalog to see what he can tease. And so then Fee comes next, which is very straightforward. That was, like a, that was the bust out of the first set that I was so in love with. Because you were chasing it at that time. That Fee, Fee seemed to be a little harder to get. And, and you wanted to see him. Uh, I mean, it's the first song on the first album. Yeah. So everybody kind of knows it. It is a lot of fans, like, first favorite Fish song. You know, it just seems like a lot of people grab onto that almost immediately when they're getting into the band. And after Fee, they go into what I thought was the highlight of the set, improvisationally, was Timber Ho. I didn't know Timber Ho too well. I know it was my first time seeing it. But I feel like that was one of those, I never listened to this before on tapes or something, just maybe hadn't come across it. So it was newish to me. And I'm pretty certain this is the time in the first set where I left to, to go to the bathroom and get a beer. Because it was hard to, it's hard to pick that point looking at this set. Yeah. When do you step out for a moment? I felt the same way during jam night at the Baker's Dozen. Like, I, <laughs> I remember I had to go to the bathroom during Cross-Eyed and Painless. It was song number two. And we were already like 40 minutes into the set. Mm. I'm, and I'm like, I'm just going to have to sit here and explode. Like, there's no time to go. And uh, But Timber Ho, this is kind of closer to what I imagine when I hear 2.0. They kind of alternated smoothness and feedback and dissonance. I thought it went a lot of places, this Timber Ho. And the come down was when the circus comes to town, which is always a sweet treat to hear. Mm-hmm. And McGrupp, which I think probably sent shockwaves through the crowd. C and then probably McGrupp are the uh, holy shit first time hearing it for me. And I, I remember getting back during the circus 
and hearing the end of it and, and, you know, explain to my brother. So, so this is from the guys that did La Bamba and, and, <laughs> and educating him on that. Um, Cause this was probably his, I don't know, seventh show or so. Um, and he'd only started in 99. Uh, but we, um, yeah, yeah, we listened to that and then McGrupp came out and I just focused on that one, sang the words I knew and, reveled and i was like holy shit i'm getting my growth these are these are rare yeah i think this is a recurring theme for us but i think it's easy to forget the context in which this show was played at the time you know there were so many rarities but especially gamehenge songs aside from maybe wilson or acdc bag i think mm-hmm. gamehenge as a as a whole kind of took a back seat during 2.0 yep and for something like McGrupp, which is one of the lesser played or even lesser known songs at the time that that must have washed all over the crowd. Yeah, I, you know, I think Possum might have been the only song that really stayed in heavy rotation among Game End songs. But they, um, yeah, McGrupp and Tila, um, Punch You in the Eye, a while, uh, Punch. It, yeah, you get some, but it was, it seemed like they were escaping that and moving yeah. away from playing those songs. So the kind of McGrupp was like, holy crap. Um, and then didn't they, uh, they punctuate the stay in the set with uh, Golgi, right? Yeah, they do. And what I noticed by the end of this set is there were no 2.0 songs played. During oh, the yeah. Set. We, were, we were all kind of realizing, like, they haven't played anything new. I think the Jabu was the only newish song. And that was, uh, well, three, year, three years old, four years old by Fish. So... Mm-hmm that's telling you something there's another show um hard for 2009 after the first set we realized wow i think the young i think the you know the 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 newest song in this it was something from the 90s and eventually the one when the show was over the newest song was um piper wow i was at that show yeah. and i never made that connection for me all the again the game henge stuff and also was it ghost into psycho killer that yeah, guy. I listened to that the other day. Ghost, Psycho Killer, Catapult. Iculus. And that, yeah, that's a whole nother episode of this show. <laughs> I could talk about that show forever. But yeah, Golgi Apparatus closed the set, and that's, you know, as old school as Camel Walk was in the beginning of it. And now we're back for set two that opens with Cross-Eyed and Painless, and what a version this is. Yeah, 24, 25 minutes long. Yeah. And this is, you know, if you listen to a 20, 25-minute version of Cross-Eyed Painless from later in 3.0 in the last, like, four or five years, you'd expect one type of version to get, you know, one one thing to happen in that 20 to 25 minutes. This is completely different and is just full of energy and just, you know following the bouncing ball of where the jam goes. <laughs> there, there, there's not a, there, there's not a dull moment in this. It eventually ends with some bliss, but this cross eye, when it started the set, I mean, when the lights went down and we were sitting, uh, for, for reference, we were sitting in the pavilion pretty much straight to the back. Um, in like one of, one of the last few rows of seats. So we had a great vantage point, a lot of room. I remember there not being, a ton of seats taken up around us until the second set started and people stubbed themselves down. 
But when we were there and you just heard the cymbal crash to start it, it was off. And I was like, oh, boy, let's <laughs> see up. It was something. It was to come out with that type of a first set. Now I think like, oh, well, geez, they're going to come out flying the second set. At the time, I, I don't know how many shows I've been to by that point, like probably somewhere in the 30s. I hadn't gotten to the point of being like, well, the first set was that good. The second set has to be even better or they're, 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 you know, they're on, they're, they're into something here. What are they going to come up with? You know, nobody, I mean, we knew what iPods were from media, but we didn't know that the band had gotten them the day before. Yeah. Was that, I've heard that rumor and I don't know if it's ever. There was a Rolling Stone article about this. Okay. And I, and I remember, I, I, I haven't looked it up, but I remember reading it and it came out a couple of days after, um, maybe even prior to it. And it was basically, you know, how did they, you know, dig so deep for their big show at Burgettown their fans are talking about. And like the band got iPods loaded with uh, every song they'd ever played. So they basically started scrolling through them and finding all these songs they wanted to play. Um, but there were a couple of others that hadn't been done in a while. And those were, you know, that had that had a little something to do with it. Getting that cross eyed, that was, you know, that 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 song is never dull. And the, yeah, it never dulled. And something I noticed today when listening to it is, it keeps up the cross eyed and painless tempo throughout the whole jam. The whole jam. Oh, it's yeah. twenty five minutes. If you could picture in your head right now how fast the band plays cross eyed, even today in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen, I guess. Imagine that for for 25 minutes and it never slows down. Like uh, the rest of the band kind of switches around where Paige is, goes from the organ to the piano and about halfway through, there's this amazing bliss chord progression from Trey. It almost sounds like a brand new song. And Fishman is very concentrated on the wood blocks. over the place they visit an entire universe as yeah. far as i'm concerned of sound they really do if you can enjoy and praise the cross-eyed from jam night of bakers then you absolutely owe it to yourself to listen to this and then say to yourselves whoa they were capable of this yeah. like on a random given night yeah they didn't need to plan it out like we've had wonderful cross-eyes in the past decade sure but that one is an all-time great so after cross-eyed and painless they settled down into thunderhead that was pretty sweet i um there was i think the only new song that night yeah that was the only new i song. think you're right i well, think you're I think right that farmhouse and jabu are the only like recent songs that showed up that night 
um, mm-hmm. of anything. Um, if I want to scratch my head a little more, um, you go back, and I think the next early su- uh, song goes back to Mule on Hoist. Like it's, it's a, it's a show that's got very little stuff from the era. Right. I mean, Bittersweet Motel was only a year or two old. No. All right. Ninety-seven. I think that debuted. Oh yeah, ninety-seven. Yeah. Okay, that's right. That was in the yeah. That's in the Harpoa. Yeah, but Thunderhead has only been played six times ever, and they were all in two thousand three. Yep. Yeah. I would. If Trey would relearn the lyrics, I think (laughs) we'd all be blessed with that. And I I know that some of the reasons they don't play songs are like, well, we don't want to just play it. We want to like you know practice it, nail it. And I'd rather that too. But just got to get that bug in his ear for hey, Thunderhead. Pretty good one. Still, still holds up. Was it as well received at the time? Because now, when they play stuff like "All of These Dreams," for example, I remember people chatting like crazy and going to the bathroom in two thousand three during "All of These Dreams." What was the vibe like for Thunderhead? If you if you remember, oh, I do remember. I uh, went to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> I I, uh, I I don't think I left right away, but I kind of saw it as like I got to get another beer. I got to go to the bathroom. I'll, I'll run off and do that. I left with my brother from where we were all sitting with with a group of friends, and let's get a beer and 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 go to the bathroom. And I I lost track of him in the span of this thunderhead, like about six or seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, so I just walked right back to the seat, beer in hand, and just as thunderhead's ending. And I, I love thunderhead, but you after that cross-eyed and. Pretty sure we just sat around all separate chilling. I didn't, I needed to, you know, take a break. Sure. But as soon as that Thunderhead is over, the first thing you hear is the drum beats that lead into Brother. Yeah. Yep. All right. The first time I heard Brother live was at Burgettstown. And I knew it and I knew of it from, um, you know, Ben and Jerry sitting in at, at Cooker Ball. Right. And, and I, I just love the lyrics. I start walking back to the back edge of the pavilion and they start doing the drum beats and I see my brother and I just kind of like freak out. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, not only do I get to finally see brother, I'm seeing brother with my brother at this groundbreaking show. And what else is going to come out of this? Well, if you're asking what oh, else is yeah. going to come out of this, what <laughs> comes next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the brother was pretty sick and, it might have been my brother. It might have been Chris's first time even hearing it, uh, but he got you know. Like, oh, wow, that's cool, and still one of those things I talk about. And then there's uh, when I re-listen to the show. There's like an extra like a minute or so of silence at the end of the track, and you're like, "What's going on here?" And then you realize they're they're queuing themselves up for that harpua they discussed backstage. Yeah, and this is, I think, the only Harpua of 2.0, and it would be the last one until uh, the summer of 2009 It's back when Fishman yep. sings I Kissed a Girl by Katy Perry. Yep. So well, this... What was, the la- what was the last Harpua before this? Was it... Um, I don't think there were any in 2.0, other nah, than this one, I mean. And... It was in 2000 or 99. Or in 99. I'm, I do a fact check at the end of every episode. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up. I'm writing I, it down. I, I now. looked this up the other day, and and I figured there's something since. Didn't they do a harpoon for one of those New Year's uh, runs in at MSG in '97? In '97, they did harpoon on 12:30 '97, which was the utter ball. 
and Tom Marshall came out for I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles, the song by the Proclaimers. Oh, yeah. Okay. So 97. There's got to be one in between there, right? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. they start with the narration where Jimmy is searching for it. You know, he's got everything but it, says Trey. And then they play Bittersweet Motel, which is an obvious call considering Mm -hmm. the location, right? And then back into Harpua, and then I fooled around and fell in love, which is, what? <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as he started singing it, I was like, oh my God, this is Elvin Bishop, this is amazing. I knew the song, I knew every bit of it, and I'm like, this is a trip. And I didn't know the history of the band members individually or, or how they were, and, and I guess this was around the time that Fishman had met Briar and was uh, settling down, uh, I guess. And I was like, oh, okay, that, that, this, this is cool. And he references, you know, have a girl, a couple other girls, maybe a boy. <laughs> and when I re-listened to this and I thought back, I'm like, doesn't he have a few girls and a boy? How does he, he does. Predict? He has five kids, yes. Yeah, and only one. I think he has the only boy in the band, and among all the band kids, he predicted his uh, lineage uh, <laughs> is going into the future. Yeah, on stage yeah. in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. Jimmy knows his stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Bittersweet Motel was cool. There's a big cheer for Pittsburgh. Sure. And then they go back into Harpua and... You know, and Trey says, you know, Jimmy looks like this guy and it's Fishman on his shirt. Um, then, oh, yeah, there were some stickers that summer and they're in the fan art book uh, that say, uh, you know, vote for Fishman. Um, um, you know, uh, Fishman is Jimmy or something like that. There was one we didn't put in that's something like I slept with Jimmy or I slept with Fishman because mm-hmm. it's unnecessary. Um, but there, there's that, that summer, there was like a summer of Jimmy. So I, I think there might have been some inspiration that, that goes even beyond that. That'd be, that would make a lot of sense. I never made that connection that if that's when Fishman met his wife, that that's what yeah. would have led to this. At the time, I didn't know anything about anything regarding that. I was pretty much surprised at, um, you know, the fact that we're getting this harpoon and they keep going back and forth into it, which was on every fish tape that was like, that had like, segues back into the same song multiple times that intrigued me the most like what are you doing nobody yeah that. i'm um, a sucker for that stuff yeah uh, and i came from a grunge background in high school and like hell that would ever happen at a grunge show or any grunge artist right yeah uh, that this was unique and you know a lot of other bands do it now so yeah the fool around and fell in love was pretty sweet and back in the end of harpua and then they and closed the set with david bowie which I re-listened to again recently, and that's got some fire to it. It's not your, uh, you know, basic in and out Bowie. And uh, fun fact, this show, if you were burning it to CDs back in the uh, first decade of the century, um, it would fit on two CDs only if you cut off Farmhouse. So um, I never listened to that Farmhouse again until... Uh, you compelled me to listen to it. Okay. Because you're not going to waste a disc on a single song and why put the filler on? Like, So, yeah, I have that. I, I had that. I re-listened to it. It's actually a killer farmhouse for back then. It's like, Yeah, it has a very soulful solo at mm-hmm. the end. 
yeah, it, it, he takes his time and it's a pretty good, like, you know, tuck you in the bed after two sets <laughs> of all that. I, I remember just being like, oh, okay, this is, this is cool. And we all like farmhouses, you know, time and, you know, all the girls are swooning. So, sure. yeah. and it's all gravy by that point anyway. I feel like the Harpua segment at the end, before Harpua, it was a great show. But when you do Harpua, which is really the holy grail of this era, because it was yeah. only played once, you, we've already talked about all the rarities played in this show anyway. That's like the, that's the ultimate. And that really elevates it, I think, from a great show to a we'll never forget this kind yeah. of show. Yeah, it, it uh, the... The the harpua stands out as like the thing where you you're excited you got it or you're pissed you missed it and there's no in between. Like if you were able to go to that show and a, and a fish fan who was capable at the time and you didn't go you were pissed. But if you went you were happy about it. Pete, thank you so much for joining me. This was a real pleasure. This show emblematic of 2.0, especially of 2003. At the time, it seemed like a set list from outer space. Now it's just an amazing show to listen back to. Thank you so much for choosing it. Thank you for being here. Where can people find information about fan art? Um, they can uh, uh, follow, follow me on social media, fan art, with a PH. Um, uh, Fanart.net has a great amount of uh, art that fans have made over the years. Be looking for a, a, a fish-inspired uh, mask. Quite a few of those <laughs> up there now. Um, but all the details on anything fan art related will pop up there. Uh, if you're a vendor uh, or an artist and you're looking to get your art out to a wider audience, that's the original concept of fan art. It was to you know before it was easy to sell stuff on social media. It was hey, let's put it up there and, and promote you as an artist. And, and that's what we're still doing. Um, we're working on a virtual fan art show. We'll have some details on that very soon. Uh, and that's going to be something that'll bring everybody together in one, one great place. And then from there, we're going to, you know, fingers crossed, we're back next year. We're going to, uh, you know, ha have something really wonderful to build onto with all the artists and creators and everybody's making fan goods and really celebrating these small businesses that we, that, that, that come from, our scene and, and, and have the inspiration behind them that we all love so much. Thank you so much for doing that and doing what you do. Good luck in the new school year. And we'll look forward to the virtual fan art show soon. Pete, take care. Thanks, man. And there you have it, my conversation with Pete Mason, or Fan Art Pete, about the show at Burgettstown, Pennsylvania on July 29th, 2003. And since we went all around and really tried to get our facts straight, we still made some mistakes. So let's take a look at today's attendance bias fact checks. First of all, throughout the episode, I incorrectly pronounced the name of the town as Burgettstown, while Pete accurately calls it Burgettstown, with a hard G. I've been pronouncing it wrong for well over a decade, but goes to show it's never too late to learn. When explaining the tour route, Pete lists Raleigh, Atlanta, and Charlotte, but he isn't quite sure which way the tour actually went. From July 25th to 27th, 2003, fish crisscrossed from Charlotte, then back to Atlanta, and ended up with that three-show run in Raleigh. So Pete's second guess was correct. 
He also guesses that Burgettstown was Fish's only Midwest show that year. He offhandedly guesses that they also played Deer Creek. They did play three nights at Deer Creek, but Fish also played two nights at Alpine Valley, and depending on your definition of the Midwest, one show in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Pete mentions a crazy stat, that Camel Walk at Darien Lake 1997 was the third performance of the song since the late 80s. He must have been holding on to that since, I don't know, since the late 80s, because he was absolutely right. The band played Camel Walk at the front in Burlington in 1989. That's how far back we're going. And then it took a six-year break before returning at the Sugarbush Summer Stage in Vermont in July 1995. It was played once again in 1997 in Germany before appearing at that Darien Lake show in question. That is an incredible job by Pete. Pete also asks if Scent of a Mule is the longest jam of the first set. During the conversation, I thought that Timber Ho was the longest jam, but Pete was again correct. Scent of a Mule's time is 10 minutes and 29 seconds, whereas Timber Ho lasted for 7 minutes and 47 seconds. Of course, the improvisation, the jams of each song are different times than that, and one may be longer than the other, but for the sake of this fact check, I'm going to stick with Scent of a Mule. Toward the end, there is a lot of discussion about Harpua. I guessed that this is the only performance of Harpua in the 2.0 era, and I was right about that. When trying to figure out when the last Harpua was played before this show, the actual answer is the incredible version on November 2nd, 1998 in Salt Lake City, where Fish played all of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon within Harpua to quote-unquote punish the fans who decided to skip the show in favor of an easier drive from Las Vegas to Denver. Thanks again to Fan Art Pete for joining me today on Attendance Bias, and thank you for listening as always. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, like, rate, and review Attendance Bias wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, everybody, and I hope to see you next week.